ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's a lot of lithium in an electric car with five to seven kilos of it in every Tesla driving on the road. But like many raw materials that are considered the next big thing in Australian mining, lithium has gone from boom to bust. The lithium prices collapsed 85% in 18 months because demand for electric vehicles and other batteries is nowhere near the boom in supply. Every second mining company has discovered it's in a lithium explorer, so it can be a part of the great energy transition. But profits are proving harder to find than lithium. Today was not a great day for mining companies. For starters, mining billionaire Andrew Forrest is shutting down his nickel mine in Western Australia following a steep fall in nickel prices. Mining at the Ravensthorpe Nickel operation on WA's south coast will be suspended and 30% of its workforce will lose their jobs. Nickel is a key ingredient in stainless steel and lithium-ion batteries, but metal prices have nearly halved in the past year. The crash in the price of minerals used to make batteries has recently resulted in large job losses in regional towns in Australia. So what's behind this sudden change in fortunes? I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wajok Country, Perth. Lithium, or Australia's white gold as it was known, was supposed to fuel the transition to electric vehicles. Then, last year, the prices for battery minerals collapsed. Now, if you were to track the price of lithium and lithium stocks on a graph, you will see a line tracking dramatically downwards. And this drastic change has taken investors by surprise because critical minerals like lithium, cobalt and nickel are essential ingredients in the batteries required for electrical vehicles. And EVs and the stations required to charge them are popping up everywhere, including some pretty remote parts of Australia. Now, EV take-up in Australia is definitely growing. Last year alone, 87,217 electric cars were sold in Australia. And this is according to figures released by the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries. But before we get ahead of ourselves, Australians did buy 1.2 million cars last year. You would think, though, given Australia mines 50% of the world's lithium, that this country would be in the driving seat of the EV revolution and the battery mineral market would be going absolutely gangbusters. Now, the steep fall in prices that has been seen has already led to mine closures in Australia, leaving people in regional towns in Ravensthorpe and Halls Creek in WA and Darwin out of work. Ravensthorpe Shire President Tom Major said the mine closure and job losses in Ravensthorpe will have an impact right through his community. I think there's 450 people directly employed, so that still means that there's going to be 130-odd people lose their jobs just based on that. And, yeah, that'll have a um, yeah that'll have a, an impact on those people and their families, obviously directly infect, affected. But then, yeah, you've got, you've got, you've got the local businesses, the um, shops, pubs, sporting teams, you know, daycare centres, all, all those numbers take a hit. Ravensorp Shire President Tom Major. So what's happening in the battery mineral market to see such drastic change in job losses? Associate Professor Mohan Yelashetti from Monash University is an expert on critical minerals. And earlier I asked him what caused these sudden changes in the global market. When, when it comes to critical minerals, and especially in the case of lithium, we produce close to 50 to 60% of world's lithium ore and also the concentrate. When you dig up one ton of rock, you get about 1% of that would be lithium. 
we upgrade that to 6%. That means we concentrate it to 6% of lithium and then we ship it out to China. What happens is when you have such a stranglehold on any supply chains, they can dictate terms, you know, at what price they're going to and whom they're going to supply or whom not in, in, a kind of, in a kind of bullish way, in a sense, sorry, I, I may, whether I should use that word or not, but um, it's, not a, it's not a free market. Associate Professor Mohan Yelashetti. Now, he predicts the demand for battery minerals like lithium will pick up again because countries need batteries to power their clean energy targets. As you are ramping up your renewable energy ambition, but at the same time, you also have to have the battery backup. So for that reason, people are fiercely looking for lithium resources. So until that point, and that's where China does this quite effectively. Uh, so there have been a number of instances where uh, when other company or other, other competitor is trying to stand up another company to you know manufacture uh, the battery ingredients, they will uh, do, uh, undercut you so that uh, you know you collapse and they continue to enjoy the monopoly. The, the plummeting lithium prices has had real world effect in some of these regional towns where there is lithium mining going on. You know, for those that have lost their jobs, they must be thinking, oh, this is just this is another boom bust cycle that I've got caught up in. Yeah, that's a very good question. And that is very common to mining industry because mining industry is quite familiar with the boom and bust cycles uh, for a long time now. Uh, it happens with the major commodities as well as these more exotic commodities like, you know, lithium, cobalt, nickel, etc., as you would uh, appreciate. If you look at uh, the battery storage, there are variety of different configurations of batteries that are in the market. We are going to need an average about you know, 5 to 10 kilogram of lithium per battery of 60 kilowatt capacity, for example. You know, if you're thinking of a car battery, a Tesla car battery, which is about 60 kilowatt hour, so that's the kind of requirement that we have about 10 kilogram of lithium per battery. So, so for every Sorry? Tesla car, you need five kilos of lithium. Yeah, five to seven or five to ten. You know, wow, that I had no idea. Every, was that every, high? Yeah, it is. Uh, meaning that uh, if you multiply that with the number of cars that we're going to uh, kind of you know deploy on our roads in the coming decades, so that's astronomical number. And that means, you know, you will have to dig up large quantities of this spodumen because, as I said, when you dig up one ton, you only get 1% of that being lithium. The rest is tailings and waste rock, right? Task is mammoth, and, and, and it's really going to be a huge ask uh, as to how much of mining that we may have to do. I know many countries are trying to source and secure this important raw material. Now, because China has... China continues to enjoy the monopoly. Um, as I said, we produce 60, 50% lithium and China controls 90, 90, close to 90% of downstream processing. That's where the criticality really is. And they don't want any other players to come into, you know, kind of. So how we can de-risk the, the solution to high supply concentration is diversification, as you would appreciate Mohan, do you think that we'll see more deals where, and I know some of the EV producers have looked to investing directly in mines. Do you think you're going to see more and more of that happening? Absolutely. For example, Tesla has already done that. Uh, otherwise, you will default your targets uh, because you know, everyone has the ambition to 
meet the net zero by 2050, and in some cases, 2060 and 2070. But one of the key ingredient that drives or that makes that happen is lithium. Mohan, for those that watch the stock exchange and have gone, you know, it was all talk about lithium and next thing it nosedived and they're looking at their portfolio, mum and dad investors looking at their portfolio now going, oh, goodness, that's not looking too crash hot at the moment. Um, uh, what do you suggest is the future for lithium and lithium stocks? Yeah, I think uh, I would personally consider this as a speed breaker. It is not uh, it's not going to bring everything to a complete halt. Again, things will pick up. Associate Professor Mohan Yelashetti from Monash University's Department of Civil Engineering speaking to me a little earlier. ABC Australia Wide. Recent floods in Victoria highlighted the dependence of small rural communities on emergency services like the State Emergency Service, which are largely made up of volunteers. But as units in some rural towns struggle to recruit and retain volunteers, it's putting pressure on their ability to respond when they're most needed. The rescue of a man and his dog from floodwaters in Victoria has highlighted this shortage of State Emergency Service volunteers. And our reporter, Tyrone Dalton, has been looking at this issue from our Bendigo office. Now, Tyrone, tell me what exactly what happened in Wedderburn. So in Wedderburn on January the 8th, when these floodwaters swept through Nardu Creek there. So Wedderburn is a town in central Victoria. It's almost bang on in the middle of the state. Uh, this floodwater swept through and it caught a man and a dog uh, tr- trying to get out of those floodwaters in that township. Uh, they were swept in the creek and the well, there wasn't a unit there to be able to rescue them. So that nearest SES unit had to come from 45 minutes away to be able to rescue this man and the dog from those floodwaters. So this caused the community to meet. They had an emergency meeting and the unit controller there, Mike Bagnall, this is what he had to say. You know, whilst ever we don't have an active, um, you know, unit in any in any ge- geography, you know, we are concerned about those response times. You know, we, we showed a map to the community on Monday nights of the response times from the nearest neighbouring units. Some of those are 30, 35, 40, up to an hour away sometimes. So, you know, that is a concern that, you know, sits with us greatly. But the only one way to recover from that is to have people come along, sign up, train and get our unit back up and running. So that's Weatherburn's unit controller, Mike Bagnall. So this is an issue that Weatherburn has, but it's not just confined to Weatherburn. How big is this problem across regional Victoria, Tyrone? So if we look at it two levels, I guess, you look at it at a community level. So there are three inactive units across a regional Victoria. So in that we have Wedderburn, which is the one that we've been talking about. There's also Denali, which is nearby. So that creates a bigger issue around coverage in that area. But there's also the Dunmankle unit, which is in Rapunyup, which is a small town, a uh, grain-growing town in the Wimmera of uh, northwest, northwest Western Victoria. Uh, so that's those three units that were in a are in a difficult position there, dormant at the moment. But it follows work done by the SES to grow the units in other towns, so like Kilmore, which is in central Victoria, Chilton in the northeast, and Robinvale, which is in the northwest. So these are the units on a small community level that need those volunteers. On a macro level, the SES in Victoria are looking to recruit 300 people this year uh, to boost their numbers. Going back, what's causing people to leave? Why aren't people volunteering? Do they know why? Yeah, well, what they can sort of say, and I guess we'll hear from um, Jamie Macri a little later on, but uh, about sort of this 
uh, topic in how they've gone about, I guess, rescuing these units and growing uh, their ranks. But the reasons that people are leaving are you can't moving along for work, or you're uh, you, you've you've got life, you know, you've got a family, you've got kids, so you've been drawn away from that. There's also been claims of mismanagement, which the ABC have followed over the last year um, through the SES units, uh, and that's caused people to leave. You know, they, it is a volunteer role. It's also become uh, based on some controllers' accounts and the controllers at the head of each unit that it's a very paper-heavy role. So they've lost that reason that they joined the SES in the first place. Paper-heavy, as you mean admin-type stuff? Admin and c- compliance are the main ones that keep coming up. That it's, it's no longer about training those members. It's become about the compliance and the, and the um, box-ticking exercises that they feel like they've been caught up in. So in Robinvale, they had a big recruitment drive and Jamie McCree, who is the recruitment advisor for Western Victoria, he was behind this. Let's have a listen to what he had to say about that recruitment drive. We started off with about only a couple active members there at Robinvale and yeah, we did a big recruitment campaign. It was ex- extremely successful and it's a town known for its multiculturalism. So we, uh, yeah, went to all the community groups and worked really hard at, you know, letting the community know that the SES, who we were and that we were struggling for numbers. And then we started running a lot of community engagement activities up the main street of Robinvale, in front of supermarkets. And we just tried to just interact with the community and talk to the community about the needs at Robinvale an extremely vulnerable situation that the SES was in. So it's about building those relationships. And it wasn't always about the people we talked to. It's about the ones that they talked to as well. So we just wanted to get the message out there that, um, you know, we wanted to reach people and get the message out there that we needed volunteers in Robinvale. Now, it's a stronger unit with about 20 members and the growth has been amazing. That's Jamie McCree. So obviously they've been successful in Robinvale, Tyrone, and getting people on board. But 300 people, that's not easy. And I can't imagine there's a massive budget involved. Is there any budget for this recruitment or is it all volunteers themselves trying to, you know, recruit volunteers essentially? It's largely volunteers, recruiting volunteers. The, the rank and file of the SES are volunteers. It relies on the community members to step up. So uh, if we look at the Wedderburn case and go back to that, they had four people express interest in joining at, after that meeting, which had about 70 people at it. Another eight have come on board since then. So they're looking at 12. If we look at the Robinvale unit as a template, they're now at 20. So they're going well. You know, A fortnight after this uh, uh, initial rescue um, that you know really brought this issue about um, again like community members it relies on people having the time um, and having the interest but also seeing the need there I think this rescue has really brought that issue to light and then the demand for that I think if you look at Robinvale as well it's a multicultural town and so the brand of the SES wasn't really known in that area so getting them to just realize what the SES is and what it does was really important. Tyrone Dalton, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Janine. This is ABC Australia Wide. WA Southwest is home to some of the tallest trees on the planet. And for decades, brave travellers to the timber town of Pemberton have been able to climb almost 60 metres to the top of the Gloucester and Dave Evans bicentennial trees without a harness or supervision. I've given it a crack myself. Years ago, the trees were used as bushfire observation towers and pegs were driven into the trunks to create a ladder that wound around the trees and led to an observation platform at the top. Now, late last year, the tree climbs were closed for an engineering review and they're yet to reopen. 
Local tourism operators say people are now changing their itineraries to bypass the town as they can no longer do the climb. Chella Williams has this story. It was more than 20 years ago that Claire Leonard's daughter climbed to the famous Gloucester tree in WA Southwest. This is five-year-old in flip-flops, thongs, and she's just been up there like a little, like up a drain pipe, basically, and she went right to the top. Now Claire is back all the way from the UK with her husband Simon, who was keen to make it to the top of the tree too. The 60-metre carry tree was used as a fire lookout in the 1940s. And Claire and Simon Leonard know climbing to the top is a pretty unique experience. Only the tree is closed to climbers and has been for months. We don't have old um, bushfire lookouts. No. So it's quite a novelty thing. It was really disappointing to see that it was closed. The nearby Dave Evans Bicentennial tree is also closed. Structural engineers are working out how to make both trees and the platform safe. In the meantime, local tourism operators like Graham Durrell are worried about the visitor dollars being lost. In an annual, it'll be into the hundreds of thousands, uh, at least, if not uh, millions. So it's a real concern, um, especially for a town that relies heavily on tourism. And um, to have uh, our main attractions closed uh, is, a, is a serious blow to, um, um, to our tourism industry. So we get back to our uh, interstate and international visitation again, who we believe and are changing their itineraries to avoid or to bypass Pemberton. As one of the timber towns impacted by the state government's ban on native logging, Pemberton is relying more and more on tourism. But Mr Dill says locals have been left in the dark about the future of their biggest attractions. We're afraid that the tree might not uh, ever open again. Recently, a new experience opened just next door to the Gloucester tree. My name is Cecile Leclerc. Um, the owner of Aerial Adventure in Pemberton. So a high ropes course. Um, it's a permanent structure which enables you to go from one tree to the other uh, via a fun activity. So it could be a zip line or a monkey bridge or a thousand rope swing. Um, really up to your imagination. Rather than feeling threatened by the world-famous attraction on her doorstep, Cecile Leclerc has joined calls for the tree to be reopened. It's definitely um, really, really wanting that to reopen. Um, it's, it's so unique. It, it's too unique to close down, I think. It is still unclear when the trees will reopen to climbers, but it probably won't be this year. The Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions is responsible for the trees. Acting Regional Manager Tim Foley won't rule out closing them to climbers forever, but he's hoping that won't happen. No, if anything, our commitment is, you know, the opposite of that, is to really keep the climbing trees experience. If the trees do reopen, he says it could be a different climbing experience. Yeah, I think there's options to look at, uh, you know, a replacement of a lookout platform at the top of the trees versus a, a partial climbing option. So they're part of the initial discussions and considerations that we'll be working through. He just wants locals and visitors to hang in there. Still book the trip. Hopefully, yeah, look, if it's in the, in the next uh, year or two, there'll be an opportunity to come back and climb the trees in some shape or form. But just going to ask people to bear with us. It's, uh, it's uh, unfortunate, but it's a bit of a complex issue that we've got to deal with. As for Claire and Simon Leonard, they want to come back to Australia one day to climb the tree. And they'd be sad to see the attraction close for good. Personally, I'd be, I would be gutted because it was sort of... You know, you associate a place with memories, they'll miss that association. That was a good time. It was, yeah, they were brilliant times.
Chella Williams with that story from Pemberton in WA Southwest. Now, when you were a kid, did you learn much about Australia's Indigenous history at school? Because for many people, it's a gap. Now, a high school in Gosford on the New South Wales Central Coast has been working hard to improve this over the past three decades, and advocates are now calling for the school's programme to be rolled out around the country. Kira Prest has this story. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this story contains names of people who have died. Yamanura. The walls of the Kawinda classroom at Henry Kendall High School are covered in vibrant painted handprints, each one telling a unique and important story about Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. From handprints of prominent Indigenous trailblazers like the late Archie Roach and Charles Perkins to young high school students, the artworks connect hundreds of First Nations people from around the country, as former high school captain and Bundjalung woman Holly Miller explains. Once you put your hands on that wall, that's connecting you to this country, this place, the ground and sort of everyone else on that wall. It pretty much shows how big the Aboriginal system and kingship system can be. We're all connected in some sort of way, even though if it's as small as a handprint, we're all together, we're all on this land together, and we've all got each other's backs no matter what. The space was established by Gamilaroi Mandanjanji and a Wobba man, Kevin Gavi Duncan, and school teacher, a non Indigenous man, Alan Herring, in 1991. You are the space. Oh, well. <laughs> we, we stepped inside with you. <laughs> your space. Well, we all did it together. Right? We did. Over the past three decades, the site's grown to include an outside yarning circle, totem poles, and a garden, providing countless Indigenous students with a a safe place to connect with lost culture and each other. By looking at the handprints and names on the classroom wall, Camilleroy woman Angel Gould was able to reconnect with her niece after the family was separated when she was younger. To see her and to think, like, this is my family and I didn't even recognise her, like, it was... It was unimaginable. It was amazing. You know, for me, seeing her again meant that I got to piece a bit of my family that had been broken apart back together. The greatest impact of spending time in this room for both Angel and Holly was that it allowed them to reconnect with their lost culture and mob. Here's Holly again. I think one of the biggest things about my cultural journey is the reflection of my father as well. When I started high school, he was really quite shunning any conversation about being Aboriginal or all these questions I had but now he's picking up Aboriginal texts and reading them and he's coming with me and wants to go with me. I think my enthusiasm has really sort of shed off on him. Current room custodian Lisa Selsby says the space reflects the devastating legacy of colonisation but believes it's become a safe haven. You see the ripple effects of, of stolen generation in here and if these kids can come into a safe space and then go on this journey of culture by connecting with community, connecting with mob, you know, it just means so much more to them. Like, like Holly's story is just like one of hundreds that I've been a privy to and privileged to watch. Uncle Kevin Gavi Duncan says the school has really led the way in championing Indigenous education and says the Kawinda classroom is now a sacred site. It's just like, you know, a cave or a rock art or engraving as such, and by having people's hands and prominent Aboriginal people to put their hands on that wall, it's the very DNA of them people that have, you know, left their print into that wall, like Charles Perkins, who was an amazing man who changed the whole political history of this country 
and we have his signature here, which is hand. Around 80 to 90% of students that go through the Coinda program now graduate and sit their HSC. Teacher Alan Herring has seen the educational benefits firsthand. When it first started, we had a pretty low retention rate, a very minimal HSC extension rate, let alone go to university. And now we, we have students that have come through that room and are now teaching and are now in high positions in, in education, Indigenous education. And that knowledge is so comforting and it's just a privilege to watch it and to be part of it. Former students and current teachers say this kind of space should be implemented at schools right around the country. In a statement, a spokesperson for the New South Wales Education Standards Authority says it's delivering a new curriculum to ensure all students have opportunities to develop their knowledge and understanding of Aboriginal culture and histories. The state's Department of Education says all schools in New South Wales aim to be culturally safe for all students. Several schools across the state have designated spaces for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, but the department says establishing them is a school-by-school basis, according to local need. Kira Price bringing us that story from the New South Wales Central Coast and that is Australia-wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Have a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.